everybody welcome to chuck yates needs a job the podcast honored to have back on the podcast rory johnston hey rory my mom's watching this do you mind telling mom what you do (laughs) absolutely and thanks for having me on chuck um so my name is rory johnston i'm the founder of commodity context which is an oil research platform you can check it out at commoditycontext.com i publish on substack uh, previously to doing this, I led commodity economics research at Scotiabank in Toronto, which is a major Canadian lender, heavily, heavily focused in the oil and gas and the Latin American metal space. Uh, so that's kind of my background is, is energy and metals. Uh, but for the last kind of two years now, I've been focusing extra special hard on the crude market, given just how exciting it's been through the through COVID and over that period kind of branched out and doing more refined products markets, refined product market stuff now as well. Uh, and the market's keeping me busy. Uh, and I think today we're going to try and just go over some of the weird things that have been happening in this market and how, you know, relative to last year's kind of, you know, crazy spike and then claw back down, this year has actually been kind of a weirder range bound kind of beleaguered. Yeah. So why don't you just lay that on me in terms of because I appreciate you coming on because I wanted to understand what is going on with crude. It seemed like we had a run. We were going back to $200 crude. I would be smart again. All those wonderful things. And anyway, (laughs) tell me how we got here. Yeah, so just, you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners kind of know these broad details, but I'll just kind of pull it all together for a nice kind of narrative overview here. The first thing I want to stress is last year, everyone thought markets were going to get exceptionally tight last year, and they just never did. So even the price spike that we saw initially in kind of March and April, and then again in June, I still firmly believe was more reflection of market overreaction to anticipated losses rather than realized kind of losses and massive supply deficits. And of course, you know, coming through 2021, coming through coming out of like the COVID slump, um, we had very, very large deficits for a very, very long time, which is why, which is how we, we went from, you know, um, a record spike in inventories through COVID and the collapse and super contango and everything that we, held, we, we dealt with in 2020. And then through the end of 2020 into 2021, we had this, these really, really big deficits as demand bounced back and OPEC kind of kept you know, some of the supply and kind of lagged it back onto the market as it was necessary. So those deficits you know, pulled that inventory position back down. And that's how we entered 2022 was we were rapidly depleting inventories. OPEC was, was, was unable or seemingly unable to keep up with its own commitments. It, it was having you know, what looked like capacity issues of its own. And then on top of everything else, of course, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, and then the IEA comes out with the you know the the ultimate kind of um, you know uh, shock and awe piece, and and kind of assuming in their forecast that Russia was going to lose upwards of three million barrels a day of supply. That would push us into kind of at that stage, kind of unprecedented durable deficits. And yeah, it, you know, I think very very easily if that had actually happened, I think very easily we could have ended up back at two hundred dollar plus crude. 
um, because you would need to essentially moderate demand at that stage so that the market would have an opportunity to clear. Now, of course, that's not what happened. Uh, we all now know with, with the benefit of hindsight, the Russian supply didn't actually fall off nearly that much and certainly not as durably. We lost about a million barrels a day of Russian supply for, for a month after the sanctions first hit, uh, and then you bounced right back. Now we, we come down a little bit again, but again, nowhere near the, the losses that the IEA had kind of baked in for our expectations at that stage. Not only that, but last year we had the double whammy of, uh, you know, COVID zero policies in China, massive lockdowns, um, you know, really, really draconian stuff. So we went from a, 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 an expectation of, you know, continued Chinese recovery and massive Russian losses straight through to no Russian losses and a big dump in Chinese demand. So we had more or less a four or five million barrel a day swing in expected balances through the bulk of 2022, which honestly is fundamental justification for, you know, how we jumped, you know, to 120, 130, and then crashed back down by the end of the year to kind of 70 or 80. And I think, so that's how we started this year, right? This year, relative to the boom and bust of last year, has been really kind of a range bound, you know, if you were just looking at the screens, a pretty boring market, at least relative to last year. And I think the reason, again, I, I see these as fundamentally justified developments in pricing. Uh, you essentially, since the end of last year into the, big, into the first bulk of this year, you had markets that were slightly oversupplied, but it's still overall kind of lowish inventory levels, but overall market balance rest through the end through the bulk of the year you know year to date and we're just now starting to see these very large deficits open up in the market which is why i think that we're beginning to durably test those kind of higher ends of the range again um so just to kind of recap you know year to date basically from december through we've essentially peaked out around the high 80s for brent and then we we, we kind of bottomed during the low set you know, sorry the high 70s for brent in the first half of the year Silicon Valley bust happened, kind of, you know, torqued um, uh, sentiment even further lower. And then we kind of dropped to the low 70s. But we've kind of been bouncing back and forth in that range ever since. And I think today we're back up at the higher end of that range. But I think we're going to need to see realized, you know, durable and lasting um, deficits and supply decline, sorry, inventory declines, particularly in OECD countries, particularly in the United States with high frequency inventory data. I think that will finally allow us to kind of push a little bit higher and kind of stick there. Um, my bias for the year is, or my bias for the second half of the year at this stage is, you know, 90 to $95 a barrel Brent. So slightly higher than where we are right now. But again, I think it's important to note that I, I see the, the ceiling of that, at least the near-term ceiling, as far more capped than we saw last year, because this year we don't have a lot of those same factors that have been driving us to kind of panic last year. Shale bottlenecks are unwinding in the United States. Russian production seems far more lasting and kind of resilient than we had expected. And now OPEC has a lot of surplus and spare capacity, given that it has unilaterally, particularly in Saudi's case, tightened the market. So I think all, you know those three big factors that helped drive us to those crazy high levels last year really aren't present this year. That said, we still have you know, realized deficits in the market because of Saudi production uh, cuts. And those will tighten the market, but I just don't think we'll have that overreaction function on the other side. So my summary of what you said to make sure I got it is last <laughs> year we head faked, oil head faked the market and the markets come back and said, nah, -uh, show me BS until I see lower inventories. Gotcha. Yeah. So 
what did the what did the Biden administration and the SPR have to do with uh, any of that? Because it, I've gone back and forth in my mind on that. Sometimes I'm sitting there going, eh, it just wasn't that much and all. But then you start doing calculations. It may have been a million barrels a day, something like that, whatever it was. That had to have played a role, too. And did we miss that, maybe? No, I think you're absolutely right. And that was actually the last time we were, you know, I was on the podcast, we were doing an energy policy kind of, you know, roundabout. And my topic was all about the SPR and how and how to use the SPR more wisely, um, which it, which honestly isn't a very popular opinion in the industry broadly. A lot of people just think that the White House should just leave their hands off oil entirely and kind of let the market solve. I would say my view is slightly, slightly different. Although I got to cut you of, off because you, know, you came on and and. You're being way too correct about it. You came on and said, let's trade the SPR. Let's make money on it. It was epic. I did. <laughs> and I loved my line about, well, Skilling needs something to do these days now that he's out of prison. So yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So, so to, to confirm your, your kind of gut feeling, I do think the SPR did play a large role, especially into the latter half price pressure we saw last year. Um, this is obviously a huge amount of oil in total, over 200 million barrels of crude from the SPR between the emergency release um, in early 2022 around, around uh, you know, following Russia's invasion. There was also another emergency release at the end of 2021, uh, just because prices were getting very heady. So I think I want to, I think there's a lot of things that the Biden administration has done well and done poorly with the SPR. And I kind of want to give, you know, you know, darts and laurels where they're, where they're uh, kind of deserved here. So I think First and foremost, where I will disagree with a lot of people in this industry is that I do think when the 180 million barrel a day, or sorry, 180 million barrel um, SPR release was ordered and authorized following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we were staring at 120 plus crude. We had this massive expectation, as I was saying at the beginning, of huge kind of unprecedented deficits. I think that was 100% justified. I think that's exactly why the SPR was designed you know, for its purpose. We had ultra backward-dated markets. This is exactly the moment that, I, that you should be feeding into the spot price. Now, what I had said on, on your show back at the time is that I, don't, I think that it should be more than just a release. So I think the worry with a release is that you blunt the price impact, which is good. You, you, know, you don't want consumers to be hurt by this kind of war in Ukraine. But at the same time, that price impact is useful to the, to the supply side because that's how we get more supply. And that's how this market usually solves, right? So if you just dump a crude of the SPR, you risk just pushing out the pain into the future, which I think is what would have happened had everything gone like we had expected with Russia and, and China. Um, what I suggested at the time was to pair it with an immediate buyback. Um, so basically for every barrel you sell, you buy another barrel a year, or a year or two down the futures curve so that both you lock in that kind of arbitrage, essentially you, you know, uh, the whole idea of super backward or in this case of, you know, extremely, extremely backward aid markets that we saw at the beginning of 2022. Um, you can basically sell today, buy back later and pocket that spread because the front of the curve is so much higher than the belly in the back of the curve. I think this would have had a double whammy, uh, a kind of a double positive whammy here because it would have helped consumers because you and I pay at the, at the pump, essentially the front of the curve, spot prices, give or take. Uh, whereas the supply response, those prices, that incentive for more supply investment are more typically kind of geared further down the curve. Because if you are a producer and you want to hedge, 
you can't hedge into the future at spot prices. You need to hedge at whatever the prevailing futures price is. So by buying back SPR volumes down the curve, you lift the back of the curve, which is helpful for a supply incentive response, while you blunt the front of the curve, which is kind of bad for consumers. At that point, we were still we were still dealing with the, you know the the rising peak of inflationary pressure, which was obviously a major concern for the White House and the Federal Reserve. So I think that was essentially how I pictured it going. I think that would have been a good trade. I think it would have made money and helped support the financing of the SPR. But I think more importantly, and I think the, the, the purpose here isn't monetary or market driven. It's, it's to blunt the kind of extremes of the market, because I think the worst thing for the White House and for most economies is not an absolute price level, but the volatility of those moves. And I think that's what that helps kind of uh, stave off. Where I oh, will- Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, you can cut in. Oh, I was going to say, where I think they did not as well is, I think, you know, highlighting the less nimble, less flexible elements of government policy here. This, is obvi- this was obviously a reasonably new direction and tenor for the White House and for the SPR more broadly. Uh, t- you know, historically, they've typically done far smaller releases, um, more or less to kind of offset hurricane impacts or, 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 or smaller kind of geopolitical stuff. Um, nothing of this scale any, anywhere close. So, you know, on one, it, they were a bit slow getting out the door. Uh, they didn't have the legal authority or policy authority initially to buy back down the curve uh, with what you'd call like fixed, you know, fixed price forward contracting. They had to do an indexed price, which was essentially, you know, you would agree to a, a future purchase, but you would index it. So basically what you end up paying is whatever the spot price is, which doesn't have that same kind of you know, pushing up the back of the curve aspect that I liked about that previous idea. Uh, but the other thing is by the, you know, as we well know now, as we were discussing at the beginning, that boom in prices that we had been expecting, that huge supply loss didn't happen. So by the time the bulk of the SPR release was actually hitting the market later in the summer, early fall, you know, that we were well past the, you know, the, the peak of that even anticipated supply crunch. Uh, but once it had started, they weren't seemingly able to turn it off. And I think that was the challenge. I would have, I think I supported the SPR release when it was first done. I think that within a couple of months, it was pretty obvious that it wasn't needed in the size. It, was not, it wasn't the crisis that we had expected. I think at that point, they should have pulled back. And I think that's where I think the failure is, is, is not be, you know, if you want to interact with the market, you need to be more flexible. You need to be more nimble because the market, as we all know, really, it, it, it only throws curveballs. So I think you know, you need to be able to adapt to that. And I think that's where kind of the the slower, more bureaucratic aspects of government have challenges. In some okay, way. talk Russia for me, and I will go ahead and fess up on the front end. I'm one for two when it comes for to Russia oil production. For years, <laughs> I kept saying it's going to fall off a cliff. Those guys can't produce any more oil. And Russian oil production is one of the flattest, things I've ever seen. And I don't understand that. So I was wrong there. That being said, I got number two right. When the sanctions were put in place, I said, it's just a price thing. The barrels aren't going anywhere. It's just what they're going to get. Somebody's going to buy it at a discount. And uh, we saw that. So talk to me about Russia. Yeah. So, I mean, you weren't alone. I think many people expected Russian production to fall far quicker. I think a lot of people had expected even before the sanctions that Russian supply was yeah, going I'm talking to have challenges. Yeah, I'm talking the last challenges. 10 years. Um, I kept, I mean, my <clears> last yeah. 10 years of fundraising at Kane, I kept saying, man, as soon as that Russian oil production falls, boom, we're in the heyday and never happened. Yeah. 
I mean, there, there's a huge resource in place. It's just a question of getting the expertise and capital deployed. And, and up, until, up until the Ukrainian invasion, they were very good at that. They were very good at JVs. They were very good at getting capital expertise into the oil field deployed. And, you know, obviously the Kremlin would just, you know, it, you don't have to deal with a lot of the same regulatory and kind of permitting concerns that you have across most other uh, kind of large resource countries uh, that are outside of OPEC, you know, Canada, United States, in this case, I'm up in Canada for the record. Um, but I think so, so that, you know, historically, they've, they've obviously been very good at that. Now, when it came to, um, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine, the concern there was, oh, okay, well, you know, the only reason they were able to defy expectations for so long was because they had all the oil field service contractors in there. You had all of this joint venture expertise from Exxon and BP, et cetera. Um, after the, the invasion, after those sanctions started leveling on, and then, and then you also got all the self-sanctioning activity from all of these companies, um, you know, BP pulled out of its, you know, joint ventures, Exxon, uh, a lot of the oil field services co companies just let, you know, up and left the country entirely. That was when I think everyone was very, very confident. There were a lot of very confident proclamations that you're going to see, you know, production fall off a cliff. So far, that hasn't happened. Um, I think we've, I would, yeah, I'm the first one to say that Russian production, both guidance and data is very muddy and, and kind of foggy right now. I think no one really for sure knows exactly how much they're producing. We know roughly what they're exporting, at least by ship. Uh, and those have remained exceptionally high. Now, you know, more recently over the past couple of months, we have seen them pull back production in line with their promised commitments to OPEC. Uh, but again, that it, for me, I have a hard time believing that OPEC, sorry, that Russia is really playing ball here. For me, there's been so much loosey-goosey obfuscation around commitments and quotas and OPEC policy, et cetera, that it mostly just seems like Moscow is going to do whatever it wants on the production side. And then OPEC and Moscow are going to figure out a way to justify it within the framework after the fact. Um, you know, initially, like even when they, this initial cut, before it was part of OPEC, uh, this OPEC plus voluntary commitment from early April, um, before that, it was, it was actually initially in opposition and punishment for, for the, the ramping of, of sanctions against, against Russian oil. Uh, and, and, and before, and you know, around the same time, it was also because they had issues with logistics. So like, there's a question of like, why, uh, it, you know, the, it's, it's gaslighting. You know, the simplest explanation is, is Moscow is fantastic at gaslighting a whole bunch of issues. And I think this, this extends entirely to OPEC plus and production guidance more broadly. Um, I will say that, you know, while we, you know, we did get a lot of high profile exits from Russia in that initial kind of early mid 2022, uh, others did stick around. Uh, and you also did get additional expertise from other kind of less, uh, less allied members. So you did see obviously that, you know, the big stories in terms of import displacement, or I guess export displacement from Russia's perspective was, you know, shifting from Europe mostly towards India, China, and Turkey. Uh, these are countries that have, you know, continued to kind of uh, play ball with Russia, both on buying its oil, but also supply, you know, exporting and supplying other goods into Russia that it was having trouble getting from the West. So generally, yeah, everyone still, still expects Russian production to fall off eventually. Uh, but I think, you know, everyone has had to moderate their expectations because they've just been durably uh, kind of stronger than anyone could. So Let's go back to 2017, 2018. I'm out fundraising Energy Fund 8 for Kane Anderson. I've got this 
poorly drawn graph showing the number of rigs running in the kingdom in Saudi Arabia. And data is horrible, right? But at the end of the day, your best guesstimate is they had 50 rigs running kind of forever. And during the shale revolution, they actually bumped up and may have had as many as 250 rigs running. And my whole point was Saudi Arabia has zero excess capacity. I don't care what they say. They wouldn't be running that many rigs if they had it. And now they're cutting back. (laughs) So I missed on Saudi Arabia. So tell me what's going on with Saudi and what they're thinking these days. Yeah. So Saudi's an interesting place recently uh, in the market. And I should say that, you know, I've, I've followed Saudi Arabia for a long time and its oil policy really did actually start to shift around the point that you mentioned, right around that point of the rise of Mohammed bin Salman as this kind of, you know, overarching figure across the governance of the kingdom. Um, And at the time, I had always wondered, um, you know, because I think for perspective, it's important to note that, you know, Saudi oil policy for decades and decades and decades, ever since the 70s, you know, just beyond, has had this, you know, this tendency towards like small C conservatism. You know, it was incremental, it was small moves, it was consensus based. Um, That is very much the opposite personality style of Mohammed bin Salman. So the question was, what would happen, not just as, you know, MBS started to take over more of the economy and the military, but eventually also the the oil industry. And, you know, for the first while, nothing really happened. Uh, It was still more of the same. But then you come into 2020, you have this price war. That seems a little, that seems a little, you know, pushy in the moment, but I didn't think much of it. You know, it was, you know, high, um, uh, you know, it was unprecedented situation and and sure, they they did end up getting Russia and the others on board. So, you know, good for them. I still, you know, hold that the OPEC plus cut in 2020, uh, at the beginning of 2020, really did save the market, not just on the downside, but also on the upside. Because if we, if they hadn't cut and you needed to force, let's say, 10 million barrels a day additional of non-OPEC supply off the market from price from prices alone, we would have had zero to like $20 prices for likely the majority or or at least months and months in 2020, which would have had far deeper impacts on where our production is today. So I would say that like OPEC plus really came to that and saved the market in a good way, I think shows the value of having policy driven guidance on the production side. Fast forward to today and specifically through, you know, um, the end of last year, that was when you first got this cut again. So initially they were, you know, we were all back. Then prices were very, you know, weak. Um, OPEC plus agreed to what I called the, at the time a paper cut because it was largely on quotas, but Saudi always does its part. So initially we got about 500,000 barrels a day of cuts from Saudi at the end of 2022. Fast forward to beginning of this year, or, you know, April of this year, you had another 500,000 from Saudi. And then, you know, at the latest OPEC plus meetings uh, for when all the ministers were there, um, when it was in person, um, they announced another million barrel a day. This was entirely a unilateral voluntary cut. So the first thing I will reflect on is the fact that relative to OPEC's norm, we now have three separate types of cuts that the, that the kingdom, actually four if we count Russia, but three specifically that, that OPEC is, is, you know, embarked upon. We have official cuts which are quotas, which are kind of, you know, that's a very formal. um, Then you have voluntary cuts amongst a group of producers, basically anyone that really had, you know, uh, you know, control over their industry. These are, you know, Saudi and core Gulf Gulf allies, among a couple others. 
Um, and then you also, and then as of you know, June, July, you have unilateral Saudi cuts. Historically, Saudi has not liked to cut its production because back in the 80s, you know, my example, I was going to 1985, after the rise of the North Sea, Saudi Arabia was briefly producing less than the British portion of the North Sea. That was, you know, the final straw. They couldn't balance, they couldn't, you know, swing production and balance the market on their own. So they let it rip. They brought production back up. And that really prompted a lot of the kind of, you know, the really, really terrible bear market that we saw over the balance of the 80s into the early 90s. That is the worst case scenario today, because now we are depending on a lot of unilateral Saudi production cuts. Um, and if they decide that they're doing too much work and everyone else is free riding, there's always the option that they can dump production back on the, on the market. And again, the, the deficits we're seeing right now are very much, you know, thanks to 2 million barrels a day of Saudi production, you know, uh, you know, curtailment and discipline. Now, to your question as to where the, I've heard this a lot, which is, you know, maybe they, you know, every time they get too high, they cut back. Is this, is this evidence that this is them running up against production, you know, limits. And I will, you know, in this, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't have access to Saudi Aramco kind of data and, you know, class, you know, these are like the highest guarded secrets in the kingdom. The only thing I will note is that when you look at historical production, it typically does, it gradually rises in these kind of chunky bits and you kind of jump around a, a new height. So I, I would say that, I do believe that Saudi can produce roughly what they say they can, at least temporarily, and probably not far off that on a more durable basis. But I will agree that I think that there is evidence that they don't like to run at those levels for very long. They've only breached these levels kind of a handful of times. Um, that said, they are they are also committed to you know further investment and in increasing that kind of level again. I think that's probably what we're going to see. They're probably going to cut back now. They're going to hang out. They're going to invest in more, and they're going to lift production again once the market can allow. Uh, but you know, no one will ever know. And I think that was that was really what we were all kind of wondering at the beginning of last year: was is this going to the moment that we finally see what what Saudi, what, what Saudi Arabia can, can produce at the max level? Because if you lost all of that Russian supply, they would be producing basically full out. Um, and I think that was this, you know, it was going to be this natural experiment that we never really got to see borne out, uh, which is a shame from a kind of an academic perspective, good from a market kind of stability perspective, of course. But I think it would have it would have finally answered a lot of questions. I think one way or, where, one way or the other would have given us more information, you know, from which to kind of further anticipate Saudi action. So you earlier made your prediction or said where you were thinking second half of this year were 90 to 95. Look into the crystal ball a little further than that. But as you're looking into that crystal ball, because you've got a standing invite to come on the podcast anytime, and I'm sure we'll do this at least once a year. What are we talking about in three years that maybe we're not thinking about right now? So I think the one thing that's really important for everyone to understand coming out of COVID is that we don't actually know what the post-COVID oil market looks like yet. From basically the you know, financial crisis right up until COVID, you had 10, 12 years of very predictable, at least demand side kind of reactions. Um, 
in hindsight, you could see shale, you could see shale and how it responded at the time. It was kind of constantly surprising because we couldn't believe how fast it was growing. Um, but, you know, there were rules. And I think the the challenge right now is that we we don't have great visibility on what, let's say, the trend in in kind of air traffic looks like. So I would say there's two two really big questions. One, where did what what is the steady state of demand go, demand growth going forward? Prior to COVID, you would say like 1.2 to 1.6 million barrels a day of growth. Call it <clears throat> one to one and a half percent of growth year on year. That was just the trend rate of growth, and essentially it was up to supply to keep up with it and prices to kind of drive that relationship. Now. We've had this period of like multi, multiple years in a row where we're growing at, you know, two to three million barrels a day because we're coming off of those COVID lows, but we're still kind of struggling to durably breach those uh, kind of pre-COVID demand levels. Um, and I think one of the challenges is that we've been in this kind of COVID era market so long that we've kind of developed a couple bad habits, in my opinion, about how we even discuss things like supply and demand balances. Most notably, this obsession with pre-COVID, you know, the 2019 level, you know, we've now just reached, you know, you'll see breathless headlines forever about, and I've written them myself because right. that people like this kind of thing, <laughs> but, you know, like, you know, uh, all, you know, brand new all-time high demand, you know, record demand, you know, in May or whatever else, which once upon a time, that was like the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> Every day. single year, by definition, it was the highest ever. Um, because it was always growing. The fact, I actually get a little worried when people start to adopt this language because it's like it makes it seem like the years of like growing durably and reliably above last year, that was just an expectation. The fact that we are now celebrating it is actually kind of a bearish phenomenon in my, in my humble opinion. So are you telling but me- I think so the question is like- So are you actually going, telling yeah. me Aunt Martha doesn't turn 39 each year? Is that what- Is, is, that, is that it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it, you know, it's it's my it's my fiftieth time around around thirty or whatever. Um, but no. So I mean, the question is like going forward. Fundamentally, where does oil demand grow? How much is that driven by China? How much of that is driven by India and the rest of emerging Asia? These are like big questions, and I think it's it's hard to say fundamentally where we're going to be in three years on a price basis if we really have kind of debates around what what demand growth is going to look like because. The difference between one and 1.5 over three years, that's a lot of oil. <clears throat> um, and I, so I think this, this compounds very quickly. Um, you know, just as an example, I'm doing a piece right now that kind of looks, I, I have this kind of piece, this series of articles on commodity context uh, talk, called Barreling Ahead. And it kind of compares the major forecast outlooks, most notably between the EIA, which I typically find is slightly more bearish on supply demand balances and their uh, short-term energy outlook. And then OPEC, which is they release their monthly oil market report, and they also have forecasts and kind of outlooks there as well. So OPEC's typically very bullish on balances, strong on demand, a little bit weaker on supply, and then EIA is the is the opposite. Over the next little over the next year, they both see reasonably kind of they see you know tighter markets, deficits, etc. After that, OPEC assumes basically that we jump right back on the pre-COVID kind of trend growth rate. Whereas EIA basically said, you know, it starts to see a slowdown, um, you know, of maybe it's maybe it's a million barrels a day of growth. Maybe it's even slightly less. Um, those become big differences because, you know, while everyone will kind of make a huge amount of hay around the fact that that U.S. shale is slowing and it is for sure slowing. I think, again, it's important to note that in the decade prior to COVID, 
something like two thirds of every incremental barrel produced globally came from US shale, which is just like a staggering level of concentration and supply growth. So no doubt we're seeing a slowdown there. Maybe it goes from 2 million barrels a day of total liquids like we saw in 2018 to maybe only 600,000 to a million barrels a day. It's still going to be some of the largest source of supply growth globally, particularly on the NGL side, where also Europe is seeing a lot of the demand on the pet, uh, on petrochemicals. So that's why it's so hard, you know, to say. And, and before we could kind of say like, U.S. is going to grow by one and a half. You know, demand will grow by one and a half. You'll kind of see some like bouncing around the sides, and everything will balance out. Now it's much harder to say like, well, if you know, demand only grows by a million. Well, by you know year three, we're one and a half million barrels shy of where we would have been had we been growing at pre-COVID levels. Even at U.S. shale growth reduced pace, you know, combine that with a little bit of growth from Canada, a little bit of growth from uh, Guyana and Brazil uh, offshore, where you're seeing a lot of optimism on on the growth outlook on supply there. I think it's quite reasonable to think that we will we will maintain a reasonably balanced market. Now, I think that if we end up in a situation where we are growing at one and a half to two million barrels a day a year, let's say we, you know, one and a half percent every year and that keeps compounding, then I think we'll end up in a much tighter environment because then I think U.S. shale is going to be much more important. And there obviously is less appetite at any price level to invest in U.S. shale. I think that is this challenge we face now is it really all comes down to demand, <coughs> which really means a lot of it comes down yeah, to demand. And- I don't have a good read on China. My gut tells me that Mark Rosano is probably onto something that they're way over leveraged. Maybe the stimulus, the (coughs) stimulus there is just not going to happen. And, you know, the problem with China is a 0.001 degree difference in the trajectory is a big freaking number, you know? And so yep. I'm sort of starting to get the, and I always get a vibe first and then get research. I have the worst confirmation bias when it comes to statistics, but my vibe is we may, we may see more trouble out of China than I think people are anticipating. I'm also very much in the concerned category on China. Um, one of my pieces recently, I t- it was titled China Oil Demand Doubts. And I think the part of the challenge with China right now is we don't have official Chinese demand data. Like we don't get, you know, from the IEA or from Statistics Canada or wherever, that there's like a consumption or even a product supplied um, kind of line item. You don't really get that for China. So what you do get is you have trade data, you have refinery data. You gotta put those together and you can say, this is roughly how much they have available in the country or apparent demand, if you will. Um, that's agnostic to inventories because we don't have great visibility on all the inventory capacity in China either. So again, it's you're kind of you're trying to analyze shadows here. But what's interesting about it is that those apparent demand numbers for April and May were the highest on record. So we see apparent demand in China absolutely running gangbusters right now, while the rest of the economy, by all indications, is struggling. So there have been <coughs> sorry, I've got something stuck in my throat. Um, there have been a variety of kind of debates going on as to what really is happening in the Chinese economy. Uh, I think, I mean, clearly the macro side seems concerning. You know, Beijing wouldn't be talking and leaning on so many policy stimulus levers if the economy was doing well. That was the whole point of their pivot. They wanted to push away from a lot of the stimulus uh, kind of dependence. They wanted to build a consumer economy. That was the plan. And it doesn't seem like it's going 
all that well, particularly not, you know, this year was supposed to not just be a bounce back from last year, but like a, a raging bounce back idea as you had all this pent up demand and people were gonna jet set and travel and kind of kick the economy off again. It just didn't seem to be happening. So one of the theories I have, and I think this is, it, it's still, I'm very open to being proven wrong because at least something will begin to make sense. Uh, but it seems like the Chinese government is, is buying and storing a lot of Finnish refined product with some of the more concerning reasons, you know, that that could be happening. First of all, you know, very simply, China, the Chinese government loves buying commodities and storing them. It's just like a thing that the Chinese government loves to do. Back when I was doing more metals, the strategic metals reserve in China is a constant factor in, let's say, copper markets or everything else. So you can't discount the fact that maybe they just are like, well, we're going to buy low, sell back high, you know, whatever else. Always a possibility. But we're talking, these are big, these are big kind of volumes. And it does seem strange, given the fact that even if it's cheaper than someone could argue it could be, diesel is still over 100 bucks a barrel, easily. So it seems like that's an expensive buy low strategy. The other argument, there's a piece recently in The Economist talking about, um, you know, how could you tell if China was preparing for war? And it's like, oh, well, it would stockpile a bunch of commodities. It would stockpile metals and food and fuel. And then I'm like, well, that's <laughs> not great. Uh, there's a really interesting long read in the FT about how, um, you know, Beijing was increasingly aggressive with its kind of flights in and around Taiwanese airspace and kind of pushing the, pushing the, pushing the edge here on a whole bunch of sides, uh, kind of just trying to stress test the environment. So while I would say that, and a couple of people suggested this to me initially, and I, my natural inclination is just like, no, like that's not what happened. Like that's not what, what the statistical mirage is telling us, you know, there has to be a more reasonable kind of run of the mill explanation. But it does seem to square a lot of the corners that I, that don't seem to totally make sense. So I think that is, while still not a base case by any means, because it's just such a stark uh, possibility, I think it's a higher probability that I'm personally comfortable with. Um, the other thing is, even if they, even if it's not, even if it's not a sure sign that they are going to, let's say, invade, which obviously is your most extreme example of this, maybe they just do plan on continuing to be provocative and they are ever worried, ever conservative, want to at least be prepared in the kind of case. But end all be all, if the consumption is not actually, you know, if it's not true domestic consumption, you know, you can only store products for so long. Um, so the question is, does domestic demand actually catch up to these inflated apparent demand numbers? Or do we eventually see Chinese, you know, apparent or observed demand fall away, uh, which could which could take some of the some of the wind out of crude sales in the second. So we talked about this uh, yesterday. I guess it got released today on uh, on BDE and Kirk Coburn's take was you China bears have been like this forever. You'll be right one day, but not today. So there's certainly that. I, to I mean, I totally agree. And particularly on the metal side. But I mean, like, it's just it's one of these things that's, you know, it doesn't make sense. And I agree. I mean, the same thing people used to say all the time about shale was that shale, you know, shale doesn't make sense economically at these price levels, you know, something's got to give. And it really took a pandemic uh, and essentially a sudden stop to the entire industry for this type of change to be made around cash flow discipline, around kind of a, a renewed contract, if you will, with investors. Um, you needed a shock. So was COVID and COVID zero the shock for China that you actually started to change some of this? I don't know. I think it's like 
there again, I, I have been on the side of throwing shade at, you know, China bears forever because China will always come back with stimulus and it will always support the economy. And, it you know, it has too much to lose from letting the bottom fall out. I still do think that that is probable here in some step. I do not think that China will let the bottom fall out. But I think that if you need to step in with that kind of support, it's really not that strong an economy in the first place. And again, it's just pushing these problems down the road. So. One of my favorite Jerry Seinfeld jokes. What is the traditional greeting of the Chinese army? General, I enjoy your chicken and I yours. I love that joke. Nobody, nobody <laughs> ever laughs. You're, you're kind to laugh. Hey, Rory, you were great to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it because I didn't understand any of this. So uh, this really helped me a lot. Um, standing invite to come back on anytime. And I will sure I will track you down to get you to do that. Mark Meyer and I have been talking about how do we revamp the energy policy draft. So get your thinking hat on about that. But most importantly, tell folks where they can find you. Perfect. Uh, well, again, thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Uh, I'm, I will definitely be back on. Um, anyone can find me on Twitter at Rory underscore Johnston. And you can find all of my research at commoditycontext.com. 